Hello, and welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Curtis, the creator of airsafe.com, your reliable source of airline safety and security information since 1996. This is show number 41, an interview with airline pilot Patrick Smith. He flies with a major U.S. airline and is the author of the book, Ask the Pilot. Patrick also writes the popular travel column at salon.com. The show is first broadcast on March 5, 2008. In this conversation, Patrick and I will discuss several issues, including popular misconceptions about airline safety, the role of the Internet in shaping the public's perception of airline safety, as well as how the TSA should be changed in order to enhance airline security. Here now is my interview with Patrick Smith. This is Todd Curtis of the Conversation at Airsafe.com, and we're pleased to have today Mr. Patrick Smith, or rather, Captain Patrick Smith, an airline First pilot. officer. First officer, oh my gosh, First Officer Captain Smith. You do fly for a major U.S. airline, and you do both domestic and international flying. Is that correct? I do fly for a, a large U.S. carrier, and presently or currently uh, mostly international flying, but I have done uh, domestic flying as well. I've also flown um, freighters, jet freighters, and flew regional planes for the better part of seven years. Prior to that, I was a flight instructor teaching people how to fly uh, small pipers and Cessnas, and Came up through the civilian ranks. I was never in the military or anything like that. So how many years have you been flying? Well, it depends how you look at it. I mean, going all the way back to when I first started taking lessons, um, I think I was 15 years old when I took my first flying lesson. And it was kind of on and off for a few years. And it wasn't until I was about 19 or 20 that I started uh, going full-time with it. And I got my first airline job um, as a first officer on a little regional plane making about $200 a week um, in 1990. And since then, I've been through two furloughs, a bankruptcy, an airline shutdown. And finally, I've uh, I've gotten lucky, I guess, and, and I'm with a good carrier, and I have a relatively good uh, seniority position flying you know, exactly the kind of routes I love to fly. And hopefully, and of course there are no guarantees in this weird business, I can uh, keep going with this for a while. It's, it's, it's a good job. So let me roll back a little bit. Your first job was $200 a, a week. And although you didn't fly 40 hours a week, it's safe to say that you were probably working, either studying or preparing to fly or debriefing, what have you, more than 40 hours a week? Well, that's a good point. And, and you touch on something that's widely misunderstood by people, which is how much pilots actually quote-unquote work. You'll often hear it's cited, for example, that pilots only fly uh, 70 hours a month, and yet they make this many dollars. And it sounds as though you're not working a lot and making a lot of money, but those times that you hear are uh, usually, they usually pertain only to, to the amount of time that the pilot is actually in the air, uh, because pilots are usually paid based on what they call block time, which is actual flight time. The time begins when you push back from the gate and ends when you dock at the other end. Not included in that is all of the ancillary time, um, pre-flighting and flight planning and post-flight and, and layovers between flights and, you know, of course, time laying over in other cities. You know, those things, I think, constitute work by any, anybody's definition, but they're not. Uh, they're usually not included in those uh, blurbs that you see in, in you know, the business paper or whatever, which give the impression that pilots don't work a lot. Um, 
you know, pilots can be on duty for hundreds of hours per month, yet they're only paid maybe for 70, 80, or 90 of those hours. Um, you know, the, the average starting salary at a regional airline flying a 50-seat RGA or, or a 30-some-odd-seat turboprop is somewhere around, well, between probably sixteen dollars and $20,000 a year. And even starting pay at a large airline, at a major carrier now, is only around $30,000 a year. If you can stay with one airline for a long period of time and build up some seniority, you do make a good living. Um, I won't kid you, but it takes a long time to get to that point. And in the meantime, you're making basic blue-collar wages or less, um, working a lot and dealing with a lot of instability and unpredictability until you become a senior pilot at a carrier. And remember also that if anything happens along the way, you're, you're furloughed, your airline um, goes bankrupt or lays you off, whatever, there's no sideways transfer of skills um, or pay. Let's say you've been with a, a large airline for 10 years and you're, and you're laid off, um, like I was a few years back. You can go to another airline usually, but you're going to do that at the bottom of their list. In other words, you're starting over at probationary pay and probationary benefits no matter how much experience you have. There's no sliding in on top. You always go to the bottom. So it happened with uh, Eastern and Pan Am. I mean, captains who you know, were making six-figure income suddenly had no job, and if they went to work at uh, a regional, you know, they went to the bottom of the list, and then they were making $15,000 a year, and there's, there's nothing, they could, nothing they could do about that. Well... Uh, one of the reasons we're talking with you today is because uh, you're not just a pilot. You're well, you're well beyond being just a pilot. You are a published author. It's an interesting story how I turned to writing. It was something that I've always toyed around with as a hobby, but it was never anything that I looked at as a potential way to make a living until I was uh, furloughed for the second time in 10 years back in 2001. And suddenly I had no job, no income, and I thought I'd give it a try and started writing a series of articles for Salon.com about airport security and different little tidbits about the industry, and it, it, it grew more and more popular, and eventually it was made into a book. So the uh, the book, uh, Ask the Pilot, is basically uh, a collection of those essays plus a few things thrown in on the side? It's an adaptation of the column's first couple of years, and it's been going for more than five years now. Frankly, I think the I think the column is a lot more wide-ranging and, and kind of more fun than the book, which is culled from, from the earlier columns, which frankly weren't as good as, as some of the later ones. Um, not that people won't enjoy the book. There's a lot of good information in there, but I think the column has a lot more to offer if you can go back through the archives and, and get a sense of some of the things I've covered. And those archives are available at the uh, the website for the book, askthepilot.com. And uh, it'll also be available at uh, askthepilot.airsafe.org. Uh, they'll have a link to your site and everything else that we're talking about here. How hard is it to come up with the kind of questions you're answering in that book? Well, I once thought that at some point I would run out of questions or run out of things to talk about. That never happened, and at this point I think uh, there's really an endless supply of topics and the way certain topics regenerate um, and come up over and over again, uh, because there are so many people out there who fly and so many people who have questions about flying, and there are so many 
myths and misconceptions about commercial flying that um, there, there's so much to talk about always. Oh, boy. Uh, let, let's talk about two of the big ones, two that come to your mind right off the bat. You know, there's this notion out there right now that flying is somehow more dangerous than it's been in the past. I mean, am I wrong about that? This is something that you deal with in, in hosting your site. Oh, yes. Um, it, it seems that people are more afraid of flying than they ever have been, which is really ironic because here we are in amidst what is the safest ever stretch in the history of civil aviation. And that just goes completely over people's heads. There hasn't been a crash in the United States involving a major airline since 2001. And not the 9-11 crashes either, I might add. No, just, just after that, there was the accident involving uh, American Airlines Flight 587 in uh, New York City, just outside Kennedy Airport. That was in November of 2001, and that was the last really catastrophic crash. There have been a few smaller ones since then, but there haven't been any involving a major airline. And that's really astonishing. Uh, more than six years. Yet there's this notion that, that planes are going down all over the place and it's more dangerous than it's ever been. And I'm not sure where that comes from. I, I think it comes from two things. First, that there are more people flying and therefore there are more people afraid because being afraid to fly is just part of human nature. So the more people doing it, the more people there are who are afraid. Secondly, the media tends to seize on relative non-events and spin them into these kind of near disasters that, that get people nervous and panicky. For example, uh, a couple of years ago, there was that incident in California involving the uh, JetBlue Airbus that landed with its landing gear uh, retracted, but uh, twisted. And, you know, from a pilot's perspective, it was fun to watch on TV, but that was a very minor incident. Um, it involved some sparks and, and, you know, a rooster tail of kind of flames going behind the plane as it scraped down the runway. But uh, really, there wasn't a whole lot to that, and there was very little danger of anything catastrophic happening or of anybody being killed or anything like that, yet it became this huge media spectacle. I have a bit to add to that one. Uh, I happened to be cooking dinner that evening. It was around 6 o'clock on the West Coast, and I happened to turn on CNN, and I see this, you know, live picture of a jet circling L.A., and I thought to myself, this is a perfect storm. We have prime time across the United States. We have CNN stopping programming to put their cameras on this. It's in Los Angeles, so every camera in the world and every news shopper in the world is going to be circling around this. This is going to be huge. So I turned off dinner that I was cooking, turned on my cell phone, and I thought, okay, the first person who calls wins. And I got a call from a local station, and I was live on the air for like uh, 20 minutes or so. Yeah, there was a strange voyeuristic aspect to that incident where the we were watching the people in the airplane from the ground. Meanwhile, the people on the airplane were watching themselves on JetBlue's seatback uh, TV screen. <laughs> so, who was watching who? Really, what what we were doing is watching passengers watching us watch them. It, it, there was a real kind of creepiness to it. And, Very American in a way. And it was slightly uh, uh, creepy and comical afterwards in that there was actually some discussion at various levels of, well, should pilots have the right to turn off the seatback televisions if there's an emergency involving their plane? I'm thinking, what's the likelihood you're going to have a live CNN event and you happen to have seatback video at the same time? And, oh, by the way, if there's a situation like that, won't the pilots be kind of busy flying the plane? Well, turning off the screens would be pretty easy. Um, 
as to whether or not it's a good idea, I, I don't know. But the, the the danger of having them on is the passengers are listening not to professionals who are diagnosing the problem and dealing with the problem, but television commentators talking about something they know very little about, and you know interviewing these supposed experts who who tend to stoke the coals rather than really give any realistic explanation of what's going on. So a couple of items that come up all the time is the role of the media when it talks about aviation issues and the role of the experts they have showing up on television. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm one of those talking head TV experts myself. I've been showing up on uh, national television since 1999, been on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, BBC, a host of other places. And I have my standards when it comes to what do I say and how do I say it. What have you seen that really gets your goat when it comes to news people, professional news people, and with these uh, experts they have when there's an accident? Well, where to begin on that one, Todd? I tell people, as a rule, every article, every broadcast that you come across that deals with civilian aviation, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, it's pretty rare to read a newspaper article, for example, following an accident or an incident or even just an article about an airline or about something to do with commercial flying that doesn't include at least one glaring mistake and several distortions. Sure, there are some reporters who tend to be better than others. Um, Alan Levin at USA Today is good. Um, Joe Sharkey, the Times uh, columnist, uh, is good. But as a rule... It's pretty uncommon to come across an article that doesn't have at least one mistake and isn't in some way giving a false or misleading bent on something. And that's true with television, too. Um, you know, the, the, no offense, but a lot of the, the talking heads that they have on are, are people who don't know a lot about the airlines in an operational sense. A lot of times after an accident, uh, they'll have, you know, a professor of aeronautics, um, you know, which sounds... Uh, you know, pretty prestigious, and, and obviously it is the person knows what he's talking about, but doesn't really have a good understanding of airline operations, and so things get get muddled up when, when they're talking about, you know, what happened to a plane that was, uh, you know, involved in an accident or whatever. Well, here's your opportunity to critique uh, my uh, multi-year odyssey as an uh, aviation safety expert. What have you seen on airsafe.com or anything I've said in the podcast or anything else that just, you said to yourself, Todd, what the heck are you talking about? No, actually, nothing uh, Nothing of yours has ever really jumped out at me. Um, I like your site a lot, and, and I often go to it as a resource when writing my columns. I like the way you, you break down the statistics. You know, the most uh, common thing I go there for is um, looking at uh, regional accidents, accident and incident statistics. Um, you know, I've done articles about flying in Africa, for example, and I've used your site to look at the uh, comparisons between different airlines, which, which segues into something. I don't know if you want to talk about it or not, but um, the idea of comparing airline to Oh, yes, I, I'll definitely want to talk about that. And, uh, it, and going on to a little bit about uh, what you mentioned about airsafe.com, my philosophy from way back when was the facts are out there, especially the facts involving dead passengers. They can't be hidden. They're always going to be bubbling up in the media or elsewhere. And that's about the only thing I could objectively say that I can get virtually 100% of the time. The other part of it is I'll just put the information out there. 
categorize it in a logical way and let the people decide what to do with it. And one of the things I can't do very well is to compare accident rates between airlines because often, especially with the developing world, I might have the numerator, that is the number of times people were killed, but I don't have the denominator, the number of flights by that aircraft or by that airline. So rather than try to estimate what it is, I'll just say, look, here's, here are the numbers I can put out there, take them and run with them. Well, I caution people against comparing airline to airline, just as I caution them against comparing aircraft type to aircraft type. I get a lot of mail, you know, um, is a particular kind of plane safer than another kind, or is this particular airline more or less safe than another? And I think when you start doing that, you get into real statistical minutia. You know, airline crashes are so infrequent to begin with that, you know, to say because one airline had for instance, three crashes over a 10-year period and another one had one, is airline A really in any meaningful way less safe than airline B? I say no. Even though they've had uh, you know, uh, three times as many crashes, that really doesn't mean anything or mean much in the big scheme of things because airlines, even relatively small airlines, still make thousands of departures, uh, sometimes a day, um, you know, but certainly thousands and thousands of departures every year, and yet we're determining which airline is safe, which is quote-unquote unsafe, you know, over the matter of one or two crashes over a multi-year period, and I really don't think that's fair. Now, another issue I come across with the people who contact me on the site is they look at, let's say, the 737 page, and it's like, oh, my gosh, the 737's had over 50 fatal events. Right. It must be a dangerous airplane. And of course, like... there are far more 737s flying than any other aircraft type. And flying in places that are, in some cases, no way, shape, or form like flying in the United States of America. True, but I also or, caution, or in Western Europe. True, true, uh, but I also caution people against saying that one part of the world is categorically less safe than another. Again, on a statistical level, somewhere yes, but on a practical level, no. Um, even Africa, you know, we hear so much about how Africa is the world's most dangerous place to fly, and statistically, there, you know, you have this much more of a chance of being killed if you're flying and so on and so forth. And I say, wait a minute, you know, you have to look at Africa and remember that those stats often include lots of, uh, you know, non-scheduled cargo airlines and these, you know, third-tier airlines. Uh, you know, some of them don't even have names. Uh, you know, all of those kind of airlines and, and carriers lumped in with more traditional airlines, you know, like uh, Kenya Airways or South African Airways or Royal Air Maroc. And, and these are these are safe carriers. And the accident stats are skewed because um, they include these airlines that aren't really airlines. Um, again, I don't like comparing airline to airline, but if we have to, I'd like to point out that uh, Tunis Air, um, the airline of Tunisia, has never had a fatal accident. South African Airways, the largest airline in Africa, I believe, hasn't had a crash since 1987. Ghana Airways which uh, unfortunately ceased operations for financial reasons a couple of years ago, had gone, uh, I believe, 50-some-odd years and never had a crash. You know, we don't often hear about that. Instead, we hear, oh, they're flying in Africa is dangerous. Um, you know, granted, there are certain pockets. Uh, Nigeria, you know, has a definitely a questionable record. It's still, it's still safer to fly in Nigeria than it is to drive. And a little bit about uh, how African aviation is... Uh viewed within the aviation safety community. As you mentioned, you had a lot of carriers, smaller carriers lumped in. But the big thing I see, I've seen over the years, Flight Safety Foundation and Boeing with their statistics, the same thing. 
they would often look at aviation safety as a question of how many statistical accidents or some specific definition have you had involving a large jet transport? Mm-hmm. Well, if the accident is such where the airplane can't be economically repaired, it's a whole loss, and the whole losses might be counted as a serious thing. Right. Well, if you're flying an airplane that's worth less than a million dollars and it's flying cargo between two places in Africa and you break a landing gear. Yeah. It only takes a flat tire to, to make it a whole loss. And a whole loss of a cargo airplane is looked at the same as a whole loss or fatal event involving a passenger airliner. And the way I've looked at things over the years is, if I'm a ticket-buying passenger, I care about passengers being killed. Everything else is secondary. So once I focus on that, most of the African events didn't even come up in my database, and nor will they. And for what it's worth, I I did a column about a a ride I took on a – it was a Ghanaian uh, regional airline, a little company called Antrac Air, and I flew them from – a city in Ghana called Kumasi to uh, Accra, the capital, and they let me sit in the jump seat. And, uh, you know, I sat there as, as kind of a pilot and also quasi-journalist taking notes on what I was seeing. And, I, and in the end, I was very impressed. Um, the two pilots were, were very experienced. The first officer had been trained in France. Um, the captain had flown jets for the Ghanaian government all around the world. And, you know, they, they used their checklists and did all their procedures, you know, exactly as, as a crew would in the U.S. or Western Europe. Yet there are people who would scoff at the idea of getting on that plane. Oh, my God, I'm not flying on some little West African regional airline. Are you crazy? And, and we had a couple things as well. Uh, uh, I mean, as a passenger, I've flown in, in Africa several times, Air Zimbabwe, uh, Kenya Airways, and a few others. Oh, Air, but, Air, and, uh, just, just to throw something, Air Zimbabwe is another carrier that um, I'm pretty sure is on the list of airlines I made that hadn't had a crash in at least 30 years. The thing I, I emphasize to people is that Aviation is a global business. The information that people use to fly and to maintain the aircraft is globally available. And everyone uses the same manufacturers. They use the same procedures. They use the same parts. And if you want to have an airline that flies to Western Europe, the United States, or Japan, you've got to play by the same rules. So it should not surprise the average passenger that whether it's Ghana or West Texas, you're going to have a pilot who's using the same basic kinds of procedures who's learning from the same basic kind of resources. Well, that gets to something that um, is important and might surprise people, which is that globally, if I remember right from the, the research I did in the article I wrote, flying in 2007, um, which is to say now, I think the article that I did was, was in 2007, is an estimated six times safer than it was a quarter of a century ago even with double the number of planes carrying double the number of people. And you'll sometimes hear, well, you know, accident rates are up. I mean, there were this many crashes last year and only this many in 1980-whatever. And wait a minute, yes, that's true. In terms of raw accident totals, yes, the numbers are up. But as a percentage of all the flights, they're way, way down. So actually, we're much safer now than we were before, even with, with many more planes and many more people in the sky. And that's something the media almost never reports on. Um, And there are different reasons for that, which is what you were talking about. Um, You know, better technology, better information shared company to company within within the industry, and maybe first and foremost, better training for for pilots, um, for maintenance workers, air traffic controllers. Um, We've seen a lot of modernization. There are places, uh, even remote corners of the world that you fly to now, that have actually surprisingly modernized uh, 
aviation infrastructures. What do you think the, the role of the Internet is in skewing the public's perception of things? Well, there is a force there that is skewing the public's perception, but it's something that's extremely hard to measure. I would say that, unfortunately, the, inter the Internet in this context probably is a lot more effective at disseminating bad information than good information. As for why people tend to latch onto that information, I don't know. That gets into human nature and psychology, I think. I did a, a column devoted to the September 11th conspiracy theory. I, I, I wouldn't know where to start on that one. It, it's crazy and, and wrong on so many levels that it's just hard to get my arms around. But it really bothers me when when people who really don't know anything about flying you know, talk about how and why the 9-11 uh, hijackers couldn't have done what they did and then couldn't have flown the airplanes the way that they did. And there are these, you know, third and fourth hand anecdotal reports of pilots said blah, blah, blah. I don't, I, uh, where to go? Where to go on that? You know, I, I think you have to remember that um, what the hijackers took advantage of that day was not a loophole in airport security. It was a loophole in, in our mindset and our notion of what hijackings were and how they went down based on years and years of hijackings in the past where crews were trained in the, what we call passive resistance and all of that. You know, had, had box cutters been banned that day, they just would have used something else. I mean, you can make a, a sharp, potentially deadly object out of just about anything, which I think is why it's, it's ridiculous at this point that we're still bothering to confiscate pointy objects from people's luggage. It, it, oh. it, it doesn't matter what weapons the, the hijackers used or didn't use that day. They, they, they could have made a weapon out of anything, and, and you know, that whole template at this point, I think, is off the table. The 9-11 plot, so long as the guys didn't chicken out, was all but guaranteed not to fail. And that's what made it so successful. And I think just the opposite is true today because passengers would never let it happen. Um, oh, absolutely. Barricaded, you've got barricaded cockpits and then locked doors. And, you know, I think uh, the line I use in my book is that a potential hijacker would barely be able to make it five steps up the aisle, let alone get into the cockpit while everybody just sat there yeah. waiting to be flown into a building. It's just not going to happen. Well, and because it has such a high likelihood of failure, I can't imagine any terrorist would be dumb enough to try it. Well, you, were, you, you stated the points, uh, some of the points I was about to state. That, uh, like I said, on 9-11, on they didn't take anything on board that was illegal. Obviously, their conspiracy to hijack the airplane wasn't itself illegal, but you can't really screen for that. Second, like you said, there were years of hijackings in this country where the standard you know, MO of a hijacker was, I'm hijacking the plane, take me home to Cuba. Except for the rare cases where you had overseas hijacks where there was a terrorist involved, domestic hijacking was all about, take me back home and you know I won't hurt anybody. So obviously the crews, the flight attendants, the passengers were in that mindset. And from the engineering perspective, uh, the cockpit doors of that era were, de were designed specifically to be broken through. Uh, for a bunch of reasons, you had to be able to break out of the door for emergencies, for uh, smoke evacuation, whatever the case may be. And some of them were very well designed with panels that you could punch out with one hand. And that was the case. And third, and you alluded to this, uh, anyone who's seen... Any one of those prison inside prison shows will show that will see that a prisoner can take I don't know 
a paper cup and you know a bed sheet and make a a rocket ship out of it. And these are folks who are not you know PhD degrees in, uh, in in being MacGyver or anything. So if that can happen in an extremely controlled environment like a prison, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to take materials commonly available even in today's airplane and airport and make up all kinds of creative things. And uh, as I as you pointed out. Passengers and crews won't stand for it anymore. There have been several occasions since 9-11 where passengers have attacked and in some cases killed other passengers who are misbehaving. And you can rest assured that if anyone tries to do anything crazy in an airplane, there will be a response. So uh, I agree with you that uh, things have changed since 9-11 and we don't have to worry about some aspects anymore. I agree with everything you just said, and I think that that is why at the security checkpoints we need to get away from this fixation with, with objects. I mean, we're wasting so much time and then so much money, so much manpower on trying to stop an attack that already happened and that really couldn't have been stopped anyway. I'm glad you opened up that door because uh, I said to myself before I had this uh, talk with you, it's like, well, gee, will Patrick want to talk about TSA and the role? Because, you know, if a pilot starts talking about TSA in a bad way, won't they get on his case and, you know, hassle him the next time he goes through? But you've opened that door, and I'm not, I'm not about to close it. So TSA, on the whole, you're saying they're emphasizing the wrong things. Correct. I think we're looking at the hierarchy of threat kind of upside down. I think that the real nuts and bolts of, of airport, or that's not even the right word, airport security, but the real nuts and bolts of keeping terrorists and criminals away from planes is something that goes on behind the scenes. It doesn't take place there at the, at the airport concourse checkpoint. That, that's a last resort. Yet we've put so much attention there. We, we seem to focus on it as, you know, that's our front line of defense. You know, right there as you're getting on the plane, and that's ridiculous because the real job, you know, is something that belongs to uh, intelligence uh, agencies and law enforcement, and, uh, you know, you don't see it happening. Um, by the time a terrorist or other criminal gets to the airport, and if you haven't stopped him, um, chances are it's too late because he's going to know how to get through that checkpoint with whatever weapon it is they've come up with. Uh, one, one, one thing I like to, to talk about here on that very point is the whole thing with liquids. Now, I happen to be overseas in Thailand the day that the, uh, the attempted bombings were happening in England with the liquid explosives, and overnight there was an absolute strict ban of anything liquid flying, even in Thailand, for a domestic flight. Now, over time, it's now evolved to the point that, yes, you can take liquids up to, uh, you know, as many as you can fit into a quart bag, so long as they're three ounces or less. And, oh, by the way, we have a few exceptions. Is it there for a medical reason? No problem. Is it there for baby formula? No problem. If you buy it in the concourse after the security gate, no problem. I'm thinking, okay, we've put a whole lot of effort into it, and the bottom line is... With very little imagination, you can still get volumes, large volumes of liquid inside the cabin. So it begs the question, why are we still bothering with it if there's no credible immediate threat of someone taking on a liquid explosive? I don't know, and there are plenty of experts who will say that it's pretty much not impossible but extremely difficult to brew up a bomb you know, in an airport laboratory using liquids out of containers in the first place. And what you know, what's to stop somebody from taking a, you know, half gallon of material and just dividing it up into three ounce containers and then bringing them through that way? I mean, there's no end to coming up with different ways of skirting this silly system. Um, my favorite kind of obvious example of TSA hypocrisy is 
they'll take a liquid out of your bag and confiscate it. Now, when they do that, the presumption has to be that it's a potentially dangerous weapon. Am I wrong? That's we're correct. We're taking this liquid away from you because it, it could be something dangerous. So what do they do with it? They turn around and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> so, you know, here at the airport checkpoint, you have these barrels just filled to the top with these containers of what I guess are dangerous liquids. Yet they're just piled up there, and you can just walk right. You know, when, when is the bomb squad coming to haul this stuff away? <laughs> you know, it's the TSA is saying we know this is pointless and stupid, but we're going to do it anyway, and they do, and and nobody really complains about it. I think maybe one of the most surprising aspects of all of this has been the lack of outrage from from citizen flyers and to some extent from the airlines. Of course, the airlines can't say too much because they can't be perceived as advocating against something that is, at least on paper, making you safer. You know, imagine the the backlash uh, from doing that. But just, you know, people are smarter than that, or I like to think they are, and yet, you know, I hear otherwise intelligent, reasonable people sometimes saying, well, you know, it's it's... It's, it does make us safer, or, or I'm glad they're doing it anyway. I don't understand where that mentality comes from because it's not making us safer. It is wasting our time, and there's no real point or purpose to it. So do you, uh, and I'm not asking you to make any political predictions here, but if there were a change in government in 2009 where the government was much less inclined to be paranoid about security and, and foreign terrorists, do you think TSA will go through a radical downsizing or radical change in attitude? Unfortunately, no, I don't. I think at this point, the TSA is there. They've created this, you know, I don't want to say monster, but it's this kind of self-perpetuating bureaucracy that's, you know, what they do behind the scenes, you know, explosives detection and behavioral profiling, all of that, you know, that's good stuff, but you don't see much of that. Mostly we just see what's going on at the concourse, and most of it is silly, and I think... Really, we've given a lot of power to um, a group that doesn't have a whole lot to do, and it's it's just self-feeding at this point, and I think too much of the population doesn't have a problem with it. You know, not everybody flies all the time, every day, and so while there's a hassle factor, it's not that big of a deal to most people. You know, everybody has their security horror story, but, you know, that was six months ago, and, and I'm not planning to fly again for a while. So it's just people have come to accept we, we, we've given into it, I think, and I, I don't really see that changing. Well, I think that's a perfect uh, uh, place to end our conversation here, and I'd like to thank you once again for taking the time to visit with us. And, of course, if you go to askthepilot.airsafe.org, you'll find uh, links to Mr. Smith's work, as well as other related information. If you'd like to find out more about Patrick Smith, his book, Ask the Pilot, or about the issues mentioned in this conversation, please visit askthepilot.airsafe.org. That's askthepilot.airsafe.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.